Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 39, Journey to Babel. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Ken, what, what, what are you doing? I'm just welcoming the people into the show, taking this buddy genre on the road to Babel. Uh, okay, I got it, but um, but no, it's not the road to Babel; it's the journey to Babel. Oh, that's embarrassing. But the good news is, I can stop talking like Bob Hope then. All right, each week we examine an episode of Star Trek to see what's there. What are the morals, messages, and meanings? And does the whole thing stand the test of time? And I'm here to tell you, okay, you can read us yeah. any number of ways you can actually get in touch with us because we would love to know from you. We're going to spend the next few minutes deciding, but then after that, we would love to know what you think of any given episode. A few ways you can reach us on Facebook. Skype and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can call us 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. That's missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, and we would also love it if you would stop by our webpage. Mission Log Podcast is, uh, is the website, missionlogpodcast.com, if you would like to check that out. Uh, super swanky. And with at least one new picture every week. At least. At least. Hey, and you know what? Uh, Normally, uh, at this time of the show, I would do uh, trivia about Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies. But if you'll indulge me, I'm going to do trivia about Star Trek. Uh, You nonconformist, you. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. So we are talking about Journey to Babel in this episode. It, It really is important to say that this is kind of DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana's baby. Um, She's the one who took the interest in fleshing out Spock's backstory. And she pitched the idea to Gene. And he said, yeah, go right ahead. Do it. Um, We had gotten little glimpses of the the Spock backstory, particularly in uh, episodes like This Side of Paradise. And it was DC who said, we need more. And one thing that I do kind of want to point out is you can also tell that she really liked writing for McCoy here, too. Um, he, he has some good moments in this episode. Um, now, one of the differences from the original draft to the finished script is the scene in which Amanda, Spock's mother, is talking to Kirk about Spock's relationship with Sarek. That scene was not originally in there. Uh, DC said that she thought that that was a scene written by Jean. Uh, but she wasn't totally sure. She felt like it didn't necessarily play true because Kirk and Amanda don't know each other. Why would she be saying so much that is personal to somebody that she doesn't know? Uh, But as we will find out in the rest of the show, it's a pretty important and effective scene. Um, Speaking of Spock's mother, Jane Wyatt, um, she is a, uh, a woman with an illustrious Hollywood career. And um, it is worth noting, Ken, I don't know if you caught it when you were watching the episode, but at the end credits, she's actually credited as Miss Jane Wyatt, not just (laughs) Jane Wyatt. Um, I did not notice that. I mean, because, you know, episodes of Star Trek are not, you know, movies based on Marvel characters. So pretty much once we hit the credits, I'm done. 
Yeah, yeah, right. There's not going to be right. a spoiler at the end. Like, oh, my God, Samuel Jackson is asking Spock to join the Avengers. Right, right. Or yeah. look, they're all uh, eating shawarma at the end of the uh, at the mission. Yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Somebody's not in freeze frame. Yeah. <laughs> right. Plenty of different reasons the... to not watch the credits. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only time that uh, Jane Wyatt, as far as I can tell, is credited as Miss Jane Wyatt. And it seems to be just sort of uh, uh, a kind gesture from the production staff to to make her stand out a little bit more. They were all thrilled to have such a a well-known, big-named actor on Star Trek. Um, Most of the budget on this episode was used toward the alien costumes and makeup. And now there were a lot of uh, recycled costumes in there, but there was a lot of original makeup being used. And uh, at the beginning of the episode, that is stock footage of the Galileo. If you're watching the original special effects, of course they redid it for CGI uh, rather than using a beam up effect for Sarek and Amanda, because that would have been too expensive to then throw in another uh, optical effect or visual effect rather you know what's funny to me about the um about the galileo's approach what is that well i was thinking about what you said last week about how the galileo is a bit like the tardis it's bigger on the inside oh indeed yeah and how you know if you're sitting right up at the front you can't see out the window without standing right yeah so if you watch the remaster um their heads they actually have a couple of faces in like there. right yeah. there in the windows, right? So I don't know if they were standing all the way in or if these were particularly tall pilots for the Galileo. Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There, they have to be really tall or they have like barbershop chairs. Yes. That just lift up. Could <laughs> be that. Screen. Could be that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. That I mean, could if you be. go with the if you go with the design of the Galileo to be something more like a van where, like in a conventional car, he'd be sitting down and looking out the window, then that works. But then as soon as you see Sarek get out of the Galileo, and you see everybody kind of ducking down and then standing up, and then they are taller than the roofline of the Galileo when they are standing on the uh, the platform there, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't add up. And one last little bit of trivia here. So the, the gentle bit of hand-holding, uh, which is not really hand-holding, sort of, two-finger-holding done by Sarek and Amanda. So that was developed by the two actors with the help of Leonard Nimoy. As we all know, Nimoy famously came up with the Vulcan salute, something that he had seen at Temple when he was uh, growing up. And um, he was sort of giving some advice to Mark Leonard and Jane Wyatt about playing these characters. And he said, well, I I do things with my hands as a Vulcan. So they came up with this little bit of using the index and middle finger to hold each other's hands as they're walking down the corridors or kind of uh, uh, with each other. So I thought that was a a neat little bit of uh, actor trivia. Now, I think I read someplace, and tell me if this is right, originally what they were supposed to be doing was thumb wrestling. Yeah, I would totally be right. (laughs) I may be wrong, but I think Journey to Babel has more non-human races in it than we've seen in any episode before. Maybe John can identify them for us. Prologue. Hanging out in Kirk's quarters, McCoy is grumbling about having to wear his dress uniform to greet all the ambassadors on board. Just one more to pick up, the one from Vulcan. At the hangar deck, stately-looking Vulcan ambassador Sarek steps off the Galileo shuttlecraft and introduces himself and his human wife, Amanda. Oh, how nice. 
We just happen to have a Vulcan on board who can show them around. Sarek declines. Did it just get a little chilly in here? Kirk offers to let Spock beam down to Vulcan to visit his parents, but get ready for it. These two are his parents. It's so uncomfortable now, we can only shake things off by cutting to the opening credits. Act 1. Kirk is showing Sarek and Amanda around the ship as they head toward the planetoid Babel for a conference. Sarek is still not exactly giving the warm fuzzies, and he heads back to his room. Amanda explains to Kirk that the relationship between Sarek and Spock has been, well, difficult for a number of years. Sarek disapproves of Spock joining Starfleet, and that's really just the beginning of years of unsettled differences. Before they can discuss more, Kirk is interrupted by Uhura that she has detected an odd signal, here and then gone. Kirk is suspicious enough to initiate an alert, but he still shows up for the reception being held for the alien ambassadors. Among the delegates heading to Babel to decide if the Corridans will be admitted to the Federation is a pushy Tellarite who starts asking Sarek for a hint of how he'll vote. Sarek declines and then retires to his quarters. Just after, Kirk gets word from the bridge that an unidentified vessel is catching up to them, and it's making good time. On the bridge, Kirk sees the vessel whiz by at warp 10. Sarek was a little restless after a chat with Amanda, and he finds himself now alone with the pushy Tellarite Gav. Sarek finally admits that he will vote in favor of bringing Corridan into the Federation. At least it will protect their mining interests. This seems to hit a little too close to home for the Tellarite, Zarek all but points the finger that the Tellarites have been illegally mining dilithium on the Corridan planet. There's a bit of a scuffle that Kirk breaks up, but it's soon followed by a threat from Gav. Cut to Gav's lifeless body in a Jeffrey's tube. Things are about to get even more awkward for Zarek. Act 2. McCoy makes the call. Gav is dead from having his neck broken, and Spock says the method is a particular form of Vulcan execution. This makes Sarek the number one suspect. In his quarters, Sarek is cooperative, but before they can get to the bottom of it, he has a kind of medical spell. They take him away to sickbay, and Spock is kind of occupying himself with work. One might even say he is so intrigued by the mystery ship and the transmission signals Uhura is picking up that he is consciously unfeeling when it comes to his father's condition. In sickbay, McCoy reveals that Sarek has had the equivalent of a heart attack, but he'll have to open him up since the Vulcan body works a bit differently from human. They're going to need blood, but Sarek has a rare T-negative type. Spock has that blood type too, but he probably doesn't have enough blood to support him through the entire operation. Spock volunteers for a drug that will accelerate production of his own blood for a transfusion. Risky, but he'll do it. Out of nowhere, Kirk is in a corridor in a fight with an Andorian. Kirk knocks him out, but the captain has been stabbed. Act 3. Spock is in command. Kirk is on the mend, but he's in no condition to do captain things. He'll need time to heal, and Spock jumps right back into his position in command, which leaves um, his father in need of the blood he was expecting to get. He can't stop Spock once he's put his mind to something. He goes to the brig to interrogate the Andorian, Telev, who nearly killed Kirk. Amanda finds Spock later in his quarters and pleads with him to change his mind to save his father. Spock is adhering to logic and duty while Amanda is trying to break through his emotions. Even a dramatically administered slap on the face doesn't work. When Kirk hears what's going on, he decides he'll have to fake being well long enough to get Spock off the bridge and into sickbay to start donating some of that sweet green blood. 
The Andorian in the brig tries to make a break for it, but he's stunned with a phaser shot. When he hits the floor, one of his antenna break off like a cheap Halloween costume, revealing the transmitter that Uhura must have been looking to pinpoint earlier. Kirk wants to see this blue-skinned guy right away. But before they can get him up to the bridge, the mystery ship shows up and starts taking shots at the Enterprise. The timing could not be worse. McCoy has got two unconscious Vulcans on his beds, and he could use a little peaceful concentration. Without it, he's not sure he can perform the surgery to save Sarek. Act 4. The enemy ship moves fast really fast. The Enterprise weapons are just too slow, and nothing is making contact. Once the Andorian is brought up to the bridge, Kirk calls him out. This is no real Andorian. Before you can push the interrogation any further, though, the enemy ship is back, and the fake Andorian seems okay with the idea of dying on board the Enterprise. Kirk changes strategy, though. He starts shutting down the power on the Enterprise to make it look like they're dead in space. When the enemy ship slinks in for the kill, Kirk gives the command to fire and finally gets the hit he was looking for. Not wanting to leave any prisoners, the enemy ship self-destructs, and so does the fake Andorian, for that matter, using a fast-acting poison. Sarek is going to be okay. Things are stable enough that he and Spock are, well, they're kind of bonding over how illogical Amanda is. Spock has already figured out that the Andorian assassin and ship were actually Orion, which leaves our crew wondering why they would attack, and leaves me wondering if Telev could dance. Spock says it was a diversionary tactic so that they could keep mining Corridan while everyone else at the conference was fighting it out with the Andorians. Kirk's energy is running out, and the doctor puts him back in a medical bed where he should be, and he actually shushes his patients, pleased to finally get the last word. Well, I gotta say, this was ill-fated from the beginning. You kind of know... Well, you kind of know it's going to go poorly based on the name of the destination. Babel... (laughs) Um, according to the online dictionary, and I knew, but I always go to, like, you know, whatever's going to be the most concise. I already knew <laughs> the story, though. It's a city of which we hear in the Bible, now thought to be Babylon, um, where God confounded a presumptuous attempt to build a tower into heaven by confusing the language of its builders into many mutually incomprehensible languages. What right. better name for a place to have negotiations between a bunch of warring factions who speak different languages? <laughs> I know. I, I kind of love it. I, I kind of love it. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's ill-fated cool. from the start. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know, one of the first things that I thought, that opening scene, which is dramatic when mm-hmm. Sarek turns down the invitation to have Spock uh, show them around the Enterprise, nobody knew anything about Spock's parents before this point. Yeah. When they went to Vulcan um, for um, Ponfar. Yeah, in a mock yeah. time. They talk about his parents. They talk about the fact that, you know, Spock's family has owned land there for 2,000 Earth years. Right. But they don't, I guess they don't actually mention them by name, do they? Yeah. And there's even a mention of Spock's father being an ambassador. And you'd think that that's a pretty high profile position. And you'd think that somewhere in the <laughs> records, they'd be like, oh, Spock's father, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Particularly because this is a unique thing that he is married to a human. Yes. It's probably not a lot of that. Yeah, but I mean, it's good for the reveal, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great reveal, but you just go, all right, come on, guys. You know, you, you know, Kirk, Spock, you're friends, but you've never had this conversation before. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, and hey, by the way, it's a really good thing. You remember Styles 
from Balance of Terror. Yes. Yeah, it's a good thing he was not around because he had a freak out when he saw the Romulans and how closely they resembled Spock. If he had seen uh, Spock's father come on board, there's no telling what he would have done. You know, I just realized you didn't mention it in the uh, trivia, did you? No, I didn't mean to because uh, we had mentioned uh, Mark Leonard in the uh, in the trivia for Balance of Terror. Well, yeah, but people might be joining back. late. Oh, how dare they? <laughs> no. Well, there is that. No, he, yeah. He, yeah. Mark no, Leonard it, it, played, it is, uh, played um, oh, I can't remember his name, but he played basically the, the enemy captain in Balance of Terror, the, the Romulan yeah, he, captain in Balance yeah, of Terror. Yeah, he was the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. Yeah. And, uh, and here he is um, with the same kind of makeup or similar kind of makeup treatment. He's got the ears. Eyebrows are a little bit different, uh, a little more gray hair. And, and in fact, he, he was not an old man playing the role of Sarek. He was 43 years old. Uh, Leonard Nimoy was in his late 30s. So they were pretty close in age, but they, they aged him a bit with makeup. And um, Well, he's and, only supposed it, to be 102, though. Oh, don't you mean 102.437 <laughs> years oh, old? Oh, you. So exact. There's... Yeah, there, there's that pedantic side of the Vulcans coming out. No, but I mean, I mean, I, I don't remember what the lifespan is of a Vulcan, but my goodness, I mean, we know from uh, the next generation that he's, that uh, Vulcans are expected to live well past 102. I mean, Sarek was oh, yeah. alive, actually, during the next generation, right? Yeah, sure yeah. was. So, I mean, 102, he's a spring chicken, for crying out loud. Yeah, and it's hard to say if he had Spock later in life or not. We don't really know how old Amanda is, you know. Yeah. If, if she's uh, if she's in her maybe early sixties now, um, wow, is that terrible? Was Sarek actually just hedging his bets? Yeah, sure, I'll marry a human because you know what? <laughs> Plenty of time to marry somebody else when she's done. See, it's it, yeah. Wait, we need to get into the details. very logical. It's, it gets weird. It gets but, weird. But again, I say logical. Hey, uh, were you watching the HD version? Yes. Cool, because uh, I, I kept going back to the fight scene that Kirk has in the corridor with the Andorian. And, and I have to wonder if, they, if he got blood on his... He's wearing that kind of green wraparound tunic. Yes, yes. I have to wonder if they got some blood on it and then had to go wash it. <laughs> because in the close-up, when he, when he goes to hit the intercom button, not only do you see kind of stains where it looks like they wiped blood on the uh, the front of the uh, the shirt, even though he got stabbed in the back and he, he's got the blood on his hand, um, you, you see some kind of smudges against the wall. And that, that's stuff that I would have never noticed before, uh, if not for the HD version. Another thing to notice about uh, Kirk's shirt, there's a scene where he's not wearing one. It's been a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it has been a while. First yeah. season, it was like every episode, at the very least, it was a ripped shirt, if not, you know, just no shirt at all. Right. And then right. I don't know if it was um I've heard that Shatner had had um sort of a love-hate relationship with his weight during yeah. during the uh, original series. You you mean a love-hate relationship with craft services? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> That'll I do mean, it. I had heard yeah. that he actually had a problem with his weight as opposed to just, yeah. you know, just over eight. But uh, it's been a while since we've seen, I don't know if it was the uh, writers or if it was just, you know, Shatner going, no, I'm feeling good this week. No, seriously, look You're at right. me. Yeah, let's, right. let's, let's just try one without my shirt and see how it goes. What do you say? <laughs> right, right. And he, he looked good. You know, they had him bandaged up, but, uh, but he, he's, he's looking pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the tough thing. You're on the show for a long time and it's the, the grueling schedule and then suddenly you have time off where you can work out again and, you know, get some sun again. So, you know, in between seasons, maybe you came back feeling uh, a little better because we're still early in season two. Yeah. Um, and by the way, a- another thing about Kirk. <laughs> so I love all the scenes on the bridge when he is faking that he's feeling better. Mm-hmm. It's a really subtle and good acting bit that, that Shatner does when he comes in. He's, he's kind of all smiles and he says, Spock, hey, get out of here. I'm feeling better. You listen to me. And he's playing it in such a way. Obviously, we've told the audience what's happening, but he's still playing it in such a way that really works nicely. But there's one bit. He keeps slamming his hand on the buttons on the captain's chair. Yeah. Did, did you notice that? Where, I mean, I, I imagine it's a, a choice by the actor. Not even looking. Not even looking. But he's just kind of not feeling well, and he's being sloppy with his work. And I just keep thinking, oh, man, please do not let him hit the jettison pod button by accident. Fox <laughs> parents, a shirtless Kirk, an exploding spaceship. This episode has everything. So one of the key things in this episode is that conversation between Amanda and Kirk. The one that I mentioned in the trivia was really not a part of the original script and the one that Dorothy Fontana had a little bit of a problem with. But there are some really key, really important uh, uh, reveals about Vulcans and about these particular three characters, uh, Sarek, Spock, and Amanda – Amanda says to Kirk, you don't understand, he's a Vulcan, I'm his wife. So first of all, that, that's a little bit of a, a, a very specific definition of the role that she has with Sarek. Because mm-hmm. Sarek has just given an order to her, you stay here, <laughs> you know. And then as they get into it about, uh, about Spock, she says to Kirk, you don't understand the Vulcan way, it's logical, it's a better way than ours. Yeah, that that word really stuck with me. I, I, I wanted to say, but Amanda, you're human. <laughs> how how is this particularly better? Spock and Sarek haven't talked in eighteen years. Well, there there is. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, there's there's at once a, a sort of um, reverence for the Vulcan way and an indictment of the Vulcan way almost every time we come across it. It seems to me. Yeah, right? because yeah. We, we get the idea that we're supposed to think that the Vulcan way is better, but then go to many of Kirk's decisions that you and I have decided throughout the uh, the course of uh, this show so far are not necessarily the most logical choices. They're the choices that Kirk, you know, chooses, but they're yeah. not necessarily logical. They're just what he believes to be right. Right. Thinking really quickly, specifically of the Apple. I mean, those I'm not sure what he did was right for those people, but he decided it was right for them. I'm not sure it was logical. And, right. of course, certainly the uh, the desire to not actually study any of the civilizations that they come across <laughs> doesn't seem yeah. like the most logical thing either. Um, and yet there is always this sort of like reverence for, uh, for Vulcan logic that um, it's kind of incongruous, it seems to me. Well, I, I really was thinking about this a lot. And 
And I think that what we keep getting at with Star Trek and, and with the Star Trek approach to Vulcans is that there is something about the dedication logic that is an admirable trait. And, and if we go on this, that every Vulcan species that we come across is something, something that we hold humanity up to as a compare and contrast moment then we can say, yes, humans should be more logical. Humans should use logic more than we do now to solve our problems. But at the same time, we take the alien species in kind of an extreme direction. And and we show, at least in this case and in many cases, we, we show the failing of that. Um, so at least the human ideal then is to strike a balance where you've got uh, enough logic, maybe more logic than we have now, or more logic than we put to use now, but tempered with the the emotion that needs to be there. I think that's what this episode finally does, is it says, okay, once we start to use emotion, then then we can sort of come together and solve a problem, you know? Because... With Spock being completely and utterly logical, A, I think he's he's hiding something. He's just being passive-aggressive. Um, you know? I mean, I really do think, like, he's not being honest. He, he's hiding behind the dedication to duty. Uh, but it's only when Amanda can appeal to that emotional side and, and slaps him, and it doesn't work, but I feel like there's some breaking through to him something where he realizes that his duty is also to her you know no i don't i don't think i agree though really why is that well we've got the same thing that we had in the the doomsday machine remember when deckard is about to kill them all Mm -hmm. in trying to kill the doomsday machine right yeah but spock knows his place on the org chart so even though all of the crew of the Enterprise, I mean, without saying it, has basically, I mean, with their eyes and with their actions and with their reticence to do what Deckard has commanded, um, mm-hmm. they've all pretty much indicated that if he would just go ahead and take command, they would follow him. And it's not until uh, Kirk comes in and says, dude, take command, that he does it, right? Yeah. Same thing yeah. happens here. Spock says he can't relinquish command, that command does not recognize personal privilege, in a way, this is sort of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. At the same time, I kind of wonder if it's pride. I mean, because what, what he also says is Scotty could not possibly do the job as well as he does. I mean, that seems to be what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or is this just adherence to the org chart that we talked about in the Doomsday Machine? Right, right. I mean, uh, there is a flaw in Spock's logic, it seems to me. They're trying to prevent a war. Uh, Sarek's vote is needed to help prevent that war. Yeah. It seems to me that it would actually be more logical to put Scotty in command, save Sarek, and prevent the war, and, you know, by the way, secure a new source of dilithium crystals for the Federation. There's a disconnect here, but none of that, I think, had to do with Amanda coming to him and saying, eh, Spock, look what you're doing to your father, because it's not, no. until, it's not until Kirk comes back on the bridge. And I know, I know, I know that, well, I don't know. I believe that Spock, uh-huh. I believe that Spock knows that Kirk is just giving him a way out. But he still yeah. won't go without Kirk giving him the way out, just like he did in uh, just like he did in the Doomsday Machine. Well, and see, and, and I, I I thought of the comparison of the two as well because it, it, it's 
Spock going strictly by the book. Right. But I, I just kept thinking, you know, there are other outs here. McCoy could, well, I don't know if he could have, uh, uh, you know, said that Spock was unfit or it was more necessary for him to be in sickbay. But there are other people on the Enterprise, Scotty being one, who could command them. Too bad we lost the Sal already, <laughs> you know, yeah. because the Sal would have probably been a good commander for uh, for this situation. Absolutely um, no love for Scotty in this episode, by the way. He's mentioned no, a lot. No, no, no. He's not in and it. And he's not there. Well, that, yeah. that's fine. But I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Spock could turn the ship over to Scotty, but no way that's going to happen. Are you kidding me? There's a ship out there shooting at us and there's no way Scotty can handle that. <laughs> Kirk, of course, says, here's what I'll do, Bones. Here, here, here's the deal I'll make you. I know I'm yeah. stabbed and could bleed out on the bridge, but I'm going to go up there long enough, just just long enough to fool Spock, and then I'm going to call Scotty. And then they get up there, and he's like, okay, call Scotty, because I'm hurting. But then the ship turns around and starts to fire on him. He's like, oh, no, no, forget it. Don't call Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know. Because Scotty apparently I can't know. handle flying a ship and shooting at another ship at the same time. Right. There's no love. I mean, the one bit of love is the fact that they do keep talking about him, even though he's not there. What is that? The fifth business? Is that what that's referred to as? Like the guy who's like not on screen, but has talked about the whole time? Yeah. Right. On the one hand, um, James Doohan is in the catbird seat because he doesn't have to show up and we're thinking about him the whole episode. On the other hand, Scotty is kind of, yeah, Scotty's kind of poo-pooed in this episode. (laughs) I I just feel like, you know, Spock has the convenient excuse to not do what a human would do. Of course, he's not human. He's half human. He's half Vulcan. Um, But it's only when somebody comes along and tells him you have to do this, that he will do it. It's only like you said, well, only when it's on the org chart that, that he will do what he is told to do. But at the same time, I, I, I feel like he was hiding behind that as a kind of excuse. Hmm. So See, that's interesting. I think it was the other way. I think yeah. he would have, well, I don't know. I think his adherence to the org chart, he would have seen his father die. I don't think he would have enjoyed doing that. But of course, enjoyment is also a human, uh, is also a human emotion. What's funny to me yeah. though, is how the Vulcans are always like, Oh, that's a human emotion. And I'm not all about that. Cause I'm all Vulcan, blah, blah, blah. We know right. now where, um, Spock's sexism comes from. I think Uh, at the end of this episode, we again see the Vulcan's perverse joy in pointing out the human weakness of emotion. The thing is, though, the only human with which Spock has had prolonged contact or at least had prolonged contact in his formative years. His mother would be his mother. Right. Who is (laughs) who is what? She is a woman. Yeah. So if we go back to this side of paradise, because we do have to mention it at least once every episode. And I think we've already mentioned it two or three times in this one. Uh, when mm. Spock says, in this side of paradise, I will never understand the inability of females to answer a direct question or, you know, something to that effect. Right. He's basically doing what he and his father have likely done with Amanda his whole life and certainly what they do at the end of this episode, you know, where right. they're like, right. oh, huh? She's always so emotional. Human. <laughs> you know, except she's a woman, too. So, of course, when Spock gets into gets into, you know, Starfleet or gets into any place where he's going to deal with anybody besides Vulcans. I mean, he may automatically transfer that emotional side to women 
as opposed to two humans. Well, except he does often yeah. say that humans are that way, but he seems particularly derisive of women. But again, that's not necessarily Spock. That's not necessarily Vulcan. It could just be 1960s television sure. or the fact that the only human that he knew um, also had lady bits. <laughs> I'll tell you the other thing that kind of didn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, particularly this being Star Trek and particularly this being a progressive show from the 1960s. Um, there's the line that Amanda has about Spock being at home nowhere. And I know that this is a critical character thing for Spock. A- as half human, has, as half Vulcan, um, he doesn't particularly belong in each world. But then I thought, well, but Star Trek is the show that says that your race, your color, uh, none of this stuff matters. Oh, it totally and, matters to the Vulcans, though. Uh, well, yeah, that, that's. But but here's the thing: it only matters because he is half human. You know, Kirk says, "Oh, there are other Vulcans on the ship," and we have to assume that that there is a long Earth slash Vulcan camaraderie, and uh, there are other Vulcans serving in Starfleet. You know, we we have to assume that they're around, and that this is a common thing. Wait a minute. When but does he say Spock- there are other? Wait. When does he say there are other Vulcans on the ship? Uh, when Sarek gives his blood type, he says his blood type is T negative. And uh, he says that that's a rare uh, – Kirk says something about there being other Vulcans. And See, I assume uh, that he was uh, just referring to Spock, either that or the people with whom Sarek was traveling. Because it seems oh, to me oh. that we would have seen yeah. another Vulcan if there were actually other Vulcans on the Enterprise. Oh, interesting. See, I, I took it as the impression that Vulcans have been around and, and that they are on the ship, but this is a particularly rare blood type that they just can't source elsewhere. Hmm. Well, I mean, it is a particularly rare blood type. They do make mention of that, but I was um, no, sure. I was under the impression that, that pretty much Spock was it, at least on the Enterprise. Maybe not in all of Starfleet, but on the Enterprise, he was the only Vulcan, because otherwise he wouldn't be so alone. Now, as far as the whole at-home-nowhere thing... I mean, we've always gotten the impression. I mean, Amanda even tells the you know the story about when you were five and you came home all stiff lipped because everybody was like, "You're not you know Vulcan enough because you're yeah. half human." Yeah. Um, the Vulcans are def are, are definitely presented as fairly eh, racist. Might be a strong word. Purist. Well, it's it's, it's tribalism. Well, yeah. okay, tribalism. Yes, but I don't think. Yeah. I didn't get the sense that that's what she was talking about when she was talking about that with Spock. I thought it was more his loneliness of like. It's a big deal. I mean, we saw this certainly in the in the reboot movie in two thousand nine. We also see it in the animated series. We have, mm-hmm. you know, and we have Amanda saying it right there. It's a big deal that he's half human, half Vulcan. Right. So he's going to feel torn. I mean, if he's on Vulcan, he's being made fun of for being part human. And if he's among humans, he you know is trying to adhere to his you know logical Vulcan side. I mean, he really is a man—a yeah. man without a country. I don't, it didn't feel to me like it was racist, as much or tribalist. Even I think it is when he's on Vulcan, but the rest of the time, I think that's just the internal turmoil that uh, that Spock feels. And, and I, I, I sympathize for the the internal turmoil mm-hmm. that, that Spock is feeling. I, I guess I keep wondering where is it in the universe. <laughs> that uh, that Spock at least will feel like he is accepted just for who he is. That place is Starfleet, you know, um, I, I hope, I think. Uh, but it, it seems that just to live his life outside of the context of the structure of, uh, of Starfleet 
you know, really, there's no place on Vulcan that people will just accept him for a being, <laughs> you know, uh, or even on Earth that he, he can't feel at home there. I don't know. It, it's a difficult thing. It, it informs so much about the character, absolutely, and it is critical about the character. But it also makes me wonder, well, where where is it in this future of Star Trek other than the quasi-militaristic structure, the meritocracy that is Starfleet, that he can just be accepted? Because there's a lot about acceptance in Star Trek that has nothing to do with what your background is or or what race you are, you know? I, you know, I, I guess the best way to put it would be uh, in in terms of the old song, uh, when we all get to Babel, what a day of rejoicing that'll be. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Things don't work out at Babel. I forgot. I, oh, yeah, yeah. Th- there may not be a place, John. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to break your heart. Yeah. Hey, um, what is the mission of uh, Starfleet? Is Kirk a soldier or a diplomat? Yeah. Because we keep having that, <laughs> we keep having that conversation. Yeah, I, you know, um, it, was, it was an interesting thing. Yes, when they're talking about... I think you said, actually, in the rundown that Sarek didn't approve of Spock joining Starfleet. And Amanda seemed to sort of say, well, that's not it exactly. What she said was that Vulcans believe peace should not depend on force. And Kirk says, with a straight face, Starfleet force is used only as a last resort. We're an instrument of civilization. (laughs) You know, because I'm standing right here right now talking to you. Yeah. If this were a normal episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then eh, maybe I'll blow him up. Maybe I'll talk to him. Let's see how it goes. Right. Well, well see, and here's the thing, though, about uh, uh, because the wording is, is difficult for uh, the, the conversation that she has with Kirk. She says that Sarek did not oppose his entry into Starfleet. But she says that Sarek had hoped that Spock would follow in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of that, she says, yeah, he, he disapproves because he disapproves of the, the use of force, but she's essentially saying, and that's what Starfleet does. Right. (laughs) So, so he doesn't have a problem with Starfleet except for the Starfleet part. Right. You know, (laughs) she just doesn't understand, though. I mean, they're an instrument of civilization. It doesn't matter what she's heard about the way. Oh, I don't know. Kirk treated the Gorn or the way um, name some others, because there are plenty. They're escaping me right now. But yeah, yeah, we're going to civilize you until it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) We call it freedom. (laughs) Get on board or else. Yeah. The other kind of cool and interesting character bit here is that, okay, Spock is well into his adult years. He, mm-hmm. he has served in Starfleet long before we met Kirk. He was with Pike. Um, and the presence of his parents is so unnerving to him. And, and it's kind of this thing that, like, no matter how old you get, your mom and dad are going to treat you like you're a child. Yeah. You know, Dude, so I am, something... I am so there. You wouldn't believe how yeah. heat up I get before I see my dad. It's absolutely true. <laughs> so yeah, I, I get, I get Spock's, uh, Spock's thing there. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh no, no, I, that was it. I was going to ask if your dad is an alien ambassador because that would be really cool. I'd like it to meet him. Could well be. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
you're from the <laughs> South. I mean, I could ask you the same question, couldn't I? Right. Because, man, you sure could. not that there's, I mean, you know, I'm, I, yeah, anyway. People are probably offended by what I just said. We'll have a beer sometime. No, we'll have a fine Georgia mint julep sometime and talk about my <laughs> Southern heritage. And how proud I am of it in some ways. And yeah, anyway, I I will say there is something else uh, weird about the Vulcans here. And it feels like we're, oh, it feels like we're sort of bashing the Vulcans. I don't mean to. It's actually been a while since we've, since we've been able to study the Vulcans in this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did a lot of that, I think, in the first part of the first season. And, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe less of it as we go. The line between logic and pride among Vulcans is razor thin, I think. Oh, yeah. I know they wouldn't say so, but I will. Bone says the Tellarite's neck was broken by an expert. Spock mm-hmm. says um, Talshaya is the Vulcan way of expertly, or expertly, if you want to pronounce it properly, uh, <laughs> breaking a neck. Now, being humans, this is kind of hard to explain, though I guess the most similar thing that we would have to that here on Earth would be called breaking someone's neck. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. And it's apparently tough to do. In fact, we barely have words for it. I mean, to, to automatically jump up and go, oh, this is the work of a Vulcan, because nobody breaks a neck like a Vulcan does. I mean, I, yeah. I will say I'm a fan of logic. Uh, some of my best friends are logical. That said, the Vulcans may want to consider whether complete and utter and naked honesty is always the best policy. Because to take this to like the real world for a second, mm-hmm. I've heard of people breaking other people's necks. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it didn't take an alien <laughs> to do it. Right. I mean, you know, if they had said something like, oh, well, he's got this special bone that nobody knows about. Right, but, you know, if it's just going to be yeah, his, his neck's broken, but it was really well broken. Oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, oh, you know who that was? That was my dad. That was my dad. My dad did that. I mean, come on. <laughs> Again, passive aggressive, <laughs> Spock. <laughs> so uh, the central dilemma then on the show is um, for for Spock the obligation for. Everybody who's on board or his uh, his obligation to his family, to his father. And, you know, earlier on in the show, when it's just a question about taking the experimental drugs, Bach is in line. He's ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he understands that, that Kirk is in command and, and he's OK with doing it. But as soon as the situation changes, he, does, he will have, have none of it. He, he will just absolutely hear none of it. And, um, I, you know, I, I brought up this ethical question before in a different way which is the uh, the train switch you know if a train is coming and you control the switch and going down one path it'll take out a hundred people and going down the other track it'll take out one person the logical person would say well i i would switch the train so it would do the least amount of damage oh but that one person is your mother or your father or somebody close to you and then suddenly it it changes greatly um, so that that same ethical dilemma is put upon Spock here, and I, I guess it, you know one of the things that we would do on this show is ask ourselves, what would we do? What what would you do? What would I do? Um, and this is incredibly difficult to answer. I it, you know you you have to side with the logic at, at some point and say it is better to save more people. But there is a a tighter obligation to 
family. But I also feel like Spock had not exhausted all the possibilities. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that in my human shoes I would want to do. We haven't um, approached this yet in the show. And so this is that whole thing about do we talk about things we haven't talked about, blah, blah, blah. This is the, yeah. Ko- this is the Kobayashi Maru. And he really should have at least tried Kirk's way. I mean, I don't mean reprogramming yeah. the situation, but uh, of not assuming that this is a no-win scenario. Because the way Spock right. is approaching this, it's either his dad dies or everybody on the Enterprise dies. And, I mean, the right. obvious solution is the one that we talked about earlier. Put Scotty in command. Scotty is not going to blow up the ship. Right. Probably. And so, right. <laughs> you know, somebody might. Right. But, I mean, Spock might even blow up the ship. He just feels like, well, nobody can do as well as I can because, I mean, look at the chart. It says right here on the chart that I am the next best guy to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes, there were ways out of this. And he probably should have taken one of those. This isn't quite to me like the Edith Keeler thing where, okay, either Hitler's going to win or she's going to die. And there's no, right. there is no middle ground in that, in that, in uh, sitting on the edge of forever. Uh, there's right. plenty of middle ground here. Plenty of possibility for middle ground here that Spock's not even considering. I mean, I honestly feel like the most logical thing would have been to put Scotty in command because at that point, all Spock is thinking about is the 400 people. Well, 500 because you got 100 ambassadors and you know all their right. people. Um, right. The 500 people on the Enterprise, but he's not thinking about the fact that interstellar war hangs on Sarek being okay. Yeah. So, I mean, he yeah. actually follows the least logical path, except, well, again, look at the big board. With the story laid out and the finer points discussed, what understanding can we take from our journey to Babel? Well, at the end of every one of these episodes, we ask ourselves a few questions about the episode that we just watched or that we watched a while ago and then that we just talked about. Uh, the episode that we just talked about is Journey to Babel. And the questions that we ask are things like, does this episode hold up? What were the messages, morals, and meanings? What have you? Uh, which way do you want to go first, John? Do you want to go with the, does the episode hold up? Or do you want to go with the messages, morals, what have you? You know what? Let's switch things up. Let's go with the messages and right. morals and meanings because I, I feel like we hit on a lot. And um, I, I don't know that, you know, again, we, we say this so often and it's really interesting to me because popularly we think of Star Trek as a message show. Every episode has a strong central message or theme. And I think in this there are a lot of small points to ponder that kind of add up for the emotional weight of the show. You have the question here about uh, family before duty or duty before family. Uh, Spock's being torn between the, uh, the 400 or now 500 people on board the Enterprise versus his dying father. Um, we've also talked in the past about trusting the people around you to do their jobs. You know, uh, we, we've run into this before, and this is maybe one of uh, the carryovers of uh, Spock's command skills that he's still working on from the days of the Galileo 7. There are people on board the Enterprise who can do a good job. Maybe they all distrust Scotty for some other reason. I don't know, but <laughs> there are other people who can do this. Um, I thought the little white lie that Kirk tells that he's okay. Again, I think it's just a wonderful scene. 
uh, when he comes back on the bridge. But but that little white lie is okay if it gets Spock to do what he's told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they don't want to argue with Spock. They just wanted to get him to go do what he's told. Now, do you think Spock? Um, you think Spock actually knew, though, right? That Kirk wasn't fit for command. I think so. He gives him that look. Yeah, a couple of times um, he does. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I really do think he knew, or at least, at least he didn't totally trust the situation. Right. Um, and and that, that's why you know, again, that that scene that when you talk about actors playing subtext, that's what that's all about. Yeah. You know. The the dialogue is one thing, but clearly they are playing something else. And I, I think it's just terrific. I, I think it's actually my favorite scene in the show, um, e- even more so than the Amanda and Kirk exchange. Because that is, th- there is no subtext there. That's just telling you what the relationships are. Yeah, I will defend that conversation, though, because I know you said earlier that it seemed to sort of come out of the blue. And you said that DC Fontana mm-hmm. was not a big fan of that conversation. Um, I can actually forgive that conversation. It didn't strike mm-hmm. me as egregious. Um, but if I'm going to look at it and say, okay, well, does this make sense? She spends her life with Vulcans, yeah. right? I mean, she spends her she's, life with she's people. glad to see a human. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he's lucky yeah. that she didn't start there and like talk him all the way through the episode because, I mean, she's finally with people who are, who are going to go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right, right, which i don't right. suspect even Sarek would do you know if she's like oh it's such a nice day yeah duh you know but he's not even gonna bother saying duh because i mean it, it, it's illogical to spend breath agreeing with her that the weather is nice you know whereas right. kirk was raised um among humans so she'll say things yep. like nice day and he'll say Sure is, you know, and then that's yeah. going to open the floodgate. So I'm okay. I'm okay yeah. with that conversation. Yeah, um, I, I kind of thought you could justify it that way too. The the only other thing that I'll say here is that you know you, you've got to put pride and principle aside every now and then to do what's right. You know, um, and, and that's kind of the battle that everybody's having with Spock is saying, look, you, you've got to cool it down with the duty here. What's right is that you help your family. We'll, we, we will be okay <laughs> if you just do that one thing. The rest of us will pull it together. Um, and also, Ken, don't marry a Vulcan. I don't think... Oh, because- well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> no, I don't... Wait, I want to go back to your other point, though. I don't think that is what yeah, is being yeah. said here. Because Spock, again, just like he did with Decker. Deckard. Deckard. Mm-hmm. De- Decker. Deckard. Decker. Uh, You're thinking about Blade Runner. I am thinking, well, <laughs> nine times out of ten. Yeah. Um, if it's not Star Trek, it's Blade Runner uh, with a side of Star Wars. But anyway, good to see the Ugnaughts, by the way, getting work outside of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, Spock lives and dies by the org chart. It's not about, I mean, he doesn't even consider duty because there is what's expected of him in a way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, but, I, I, mean, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, Yes. <laughs> yes. In no other words, yes. That, right. that is what he lives by. Um, there's, but, there's a short in his logic, it seems to me, but we, you know, we talked about that earlier. Yes. It's forgivable because, I mean, he's been in this quasi-military organization for 18 years now. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's risen all the way up to, you know, second in command. So it, it must have something going for it. Plus, look at all these new people that we're meeting. And half the time, we don't even wreck their society. So <laughs> this is a good thing. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. And uh, hopefully something will come along that will also let me do the right thing. 
Um, which all of that makes it sound like I don't like this episode. I, I should, you know, if I were being polite, I would put it to you whether this episode holds up. I'll say this episode mm-hmm. holds up because even if we don't agree with everything that Spock does, and even if we don't agree with mm-hmm. everything that has gone into the way he was raised, as far as like, you know, the way they treat Amanda uh, specifically, yeah. um, it's great to learn more about Spock. And it's also great to see Sarek. Yeah. He's a lot of fun. He's yeah. a, he's a, he's, I don't know if it's because there's, because he's so reserved, because he's Vulcan, but he's a much more fun character than Amanda is. Because, you Preach. know, because you, because you don't know what's there exactly. You get a sense of it, but you don't know what's there exactly. I agree. Well, and speaking of not knowing exactly what's there with Sarek, I mean, you have to assume that even though he is the uber Vulcan compared to Spock, because he, he is purely Vulcan, he is more dedicated to logic and Vulcan ways. He still married an Earth woman. Yeah. He still did something that was not logical. <laughs> so, and he also hides his medical condition. He does all of these things that that may be out of pride, that that may be out of a, a kind of gut emotion that he is unwilling to uh, to admit. So. There are a lot of facets to the Sarek character, and not to mention that Mark Leonard is just an awesome actor to watch, um, that that really make him fascinating. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it's fair, actually, to say that he's an uber-Vulcan compared to Spock. You almost have to say that he's an uber-Vulcan, period, because, mm-hmm. I mean, Spock's half-human lineage has been enough to sort of... Um, uh, get him made fun of certainly if not uh, outright discriminated against sure by the vulcans sure. and yet sarek despite this outwardly seeming illogical um uh, move of marrying an earthling or marrying a human yeah. um has i mean he's still risen the ranks you know he still owns land that they've owned for 2000 years that wasn't stripped away from him which one assumes the vulcan government could do if the vulcan government felt like doing that and he's actually <laughs> risen to the rank of ambassador although maybe that has yeah. to do with the land ownership my assumption is the fact that they've sent him to prevent a war even though he was nutty enough to marry a human yeah <laughs> he must yeah. be uber vulcan right right or the uber um, vulcan the, yes yes so i i, I I'm kind of uh, I'm definitely with you on the question about whether or not the episode holds up. If you were just to pull this completely out of context, um, mm. I would be a little more on the fence yeah. about whether this is just a purely great episode of Star Trek. This one always ends up in people's you know top ten lists and all that. Um, but I think if you take it out of context, it doesn't necessarily hold up as the best of all time. However, right. I will I will give it a yes because as a piece of Star Trek mythology, this is great. Yeah, um, and the the acting is terrific, and the the interplay between um, uh, Spock, Sarek, and Amanda, e- even given those kind of cringeworthy moments, <laughs> yeah, the, um, are, are really good. Yeah, I would say uh, similar to Mirror Mirror in that respect. I mean, the cool thing about Mirror Mirror is seeing. Yeah, mm-hmm. sort of the juxtaposition of, of 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 the violent, you know, the Federation, which I guess they actually call, I think it's the Empire, right? Um, right, right. It, it, the violence of that and, and the characters that we know and love you know, sort of trying to exist in that, you know, horrible place. I mean, to fans of yeah. Star Trek and the people who know the characters, that's just a, a completely awesome episode. 
Whereas right. for first timers, you'd be like, okay, well, it seems like things are weird for those people, but it doesn't mean quite as much to me. Probably yeah. the same thing with but, this episode. I mean, you know, we've seen Spock for uh, close to a season and a half now, but then to get that, you know, that sort of that look, you know, into what made him what he is. I mean, that's probably what makes this a more special episode. And if you've never seen an episode of Star Trek, then, yeah, oh, he's had trouble with yeah. his dad. Who hasn't? Let's move on. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think the other thing here that I really like, and, you, you know, Ken, you and I have gotten some feedback from listeners about our picking away at Vulcans and the Vulcan mythology and all of the stuff. But I think that's what makes it so strong is that, you know, as I said before in in this episode, that we use those alien races and, and those very strong archetypes as a reflection for humanity to show us either our good sides or our bad sides or something to aspire to. And throughout this episode, we are holding up Vulcan logic, um, certainly Amanda is, as something very valuable, something to aspire to. But then we're also going to pick it apart and show the weakness of having that. Um, and I think that's the strength of the writing of Star Trek is to allow things to be multifaceted that way, to not just say this, this is all good or all bad, um, but we're going to present real world in, in, the, in, in the context of the show. We're going to present real world how these philosophies hold up and play out when we challenge them. John Champion, I am with you. <laughs> right. And... I will be with you again next week when we put Friday's Child in the Mission Log. Some of the music for the Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Not too nitpick, but I think this is the second week in a row that the Enterprise has left a potential war unresolved. So, let's hear it for diplomacy. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 